Well, that's the tone. Don't, don't you be groaning, Dave. There's going to be more of that coming later on. I bet there yeah, is. Yeah. I bet there is. Welcome to another edition of Films on Trial. I'm Gav. I'm Alex. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. And I'm Austin. And this week, our Halloween Horror Month concludes. As all throughout October, each one of the Films on Trial gang has been putting a horror film on trial that they found to be personally unsettling. And this week, for the final time... It is the turn of Dave. So, Dave, you have picked the 70s horror film, Don't Look Now. Can you briefly tell us why you have picked this film? Uh, Well, it was a difficult brief for me this year. You know, we were asked to pick out films that we have genuinely stayed with us. We found disturbing or or genuinely frightening. And I, I thought about this one for a long time. And some of the films I were coming up with were like genuinely disturbing so much so I didn't want to watch them again. Stuff like Martyrs was coming up in my head. And then Alex suggested to me, why don't you do Don't Look Now? And he hit the nail on the head. This is a great film for us to do. This film did stay with me. I watched it. Must have been early mid-teens, something like that. I think I first watched Don't Look Now, and it does stay with you. And I know a lot of people that it stayed with. I mean, I was chatting about it in work just the other day, and some guys came in. Chris came in from, from outside while I was chatting to Mel. and was like, I know the film you're talking about. Scariest film I've ever seen. And it's like, I, I like this guy. So it's like a lot of people clearly believe that this film is is terrifying, and it could be worth a look in, you know? Maybe a little dated now. It is an old film, but I think it's worth a debate. Okay, thank you very much for that, Dave. Very well summed up. So today we're going to find out whether Don't Look Now is an angelic daughter or a killer little person. (laughs) Essentially, will this film be placed on our esteemed hit list or our steaming shit list? Now, before we go on, our last film on trial was Eden Lake. No, it wasn't. What was it? A Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) (laughs) You judged. I haven't updated my notes. Yeah, it was A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I judged that film and deemed that it should be placed on the hit list. I've since gone away and watched it. So did I make the right call? I personally think I did. I do not know. Of course you do. Of course you fucking do. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly don't know what any of you were going on about when you were saying it was dated or shit. Of course you don't. (laughs) Honestly, I, I I just enjoyed it so much. And... I enjoyed it so much that I decided to watch the remake of it right after it in one sitting. And that was a massive mistake because it was so fucking boring. But yeah, everything about the film, I just thought the way it could set it. it was, well, firstly, it's such a unique idea in the first place. But the way it sets its scene up right from the get-go and the way that it's filmed, the use of practical special effects... Those scenes in particular that Dave was talking about with the characters on the ceiling and getting completely decimated and then obviously Johnny Depp's character getting sucked into the bed. They, they are some of probably the most iconic death scenes in all horror films and they uh, are constantly being discussed to this day. And I just think that even if you do think that it looks a bit dated or tinny or shit, there are things I mean, there... I, I love it, but the reason they're discussed to this day is because they look so shit. 
<laughs> I don't know. And, no. and, are, and are acted by, as Joel said, shockingly shit actors. <laughs> no, I've got to disagree. I'm sorry. I think it's because that they are original and they are unique. And, and uh, you know, at the time you hadn't seen anything like that. I mean, now, you know, stuff might look more realistic, but it's definitely worse. You know, like watching a Saw film. Yeah, it looks like somebody is genuinely honestly, getting their fingers chopped you, off. But You better simmer down, otherwise we're going to put Nightmare on <laughs> and Street back on trial like, right now. Okay, now on to the trial. So all of the film... Oh, no, I was going to say all the roles have been picked out of the Hazard Rounds, but obviously they haven't because Dave is going to be defending... Whatever we're doing now, not a nightmare on Elm Street. I've completely lost Don't look now. Don't look now. <laughs> <laughs> However, all of the other roles have been picked out of the hat at random. So acting One in thing defense... I do like, though, about these roles is that Dave specifically said, not Gab, <laughs> as to somebody who he wanted to work <laughs> Right, okay. I will say that, I, yes. I was going to say, that's not an insult to Gab. All will become clear. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I will say two of the roles have been picked out of the hat at random. Dave did specify that he didn't want me to be on his team. Thank you very much. <laughs> But like th- th- those two other roles have been picked out of the hat at random. And uh, once again, I've gone with classic horror villains. Now, I, I wrote my script uh, when I was recovering in hospital. So I was feeling in, in a little bit more of a pleasant mood than I usually am in. And Lovely. I don't know if you'll be able to identify that from, from these. But here we go. Okay, so Dave is just like the Candyman from Candyman. He's got a lovely velvety voice. Aww. And Aww. Alex is just like Pinhead from Hellraiser. He's very dependable. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Uh, at this prosecution and trying to get this film placed on the shit list will be me and Joel. I'm a bit like Jason Voorhees. Nice broad shoulders. And Joel is just like Freddy Krueger. I'm literally leaving right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Joel is just like Freddy Krueger. He's always making us laugh. <laughs> now, just like real court advocates, the defense and prosecution will be making the best case for their roles. These may or may not be their real opinions, though. So do stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear what they really think. Now, this week, Ozzy has the most important role as he will be playing the judge. And he has to decide which list the film should be placed on, hit or shit, based solely on the arguments put to him and not using his own opinion. And Ozzy is just like the gin from Wishmaster. He's very generous. And uh, that's Aww. it. That's <laughs> really, nice. really nice. I was totally oh. expecting that to be something yeah. else. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I surprise myself sometimes. Is it because of all the drugs that you were on? A little bit. <laughs> oh, we should get Gav more morphine. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, before we get started, I think that we should give the audience a bit of a better understanding as to what this film is all about. Let's not spin the wheel of impressions, but instead ask Dave to read off the synopsis of the film in the style of one of the cast or characters from the film. So, how would we like Dave to read the synopsis? Uh, as an Italian bishop. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, I was looking clueless again. I was like, I can't think of any distinctive... I know, I was like, what does Donald sound like? It's just like a regular Canadian man. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Um, I, 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 Italian I'm, I'm definitely in with Alex there, yeah. I mean, this will be quite funny because I can't do an Italian accent. This will come across a bit like Antonio Banderas. I know, Dave, that's honest. not true. I remember your Monica Bellucci impression, and yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. I've just got oh, a this... advert in my head already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without trying to be too offensive about it. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I'll have a go, but I, I warn you, this is probably going to sound more Spanish than Italian. 
A married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. I knew it was going to go a bit Spanish. It was going to go a little Spanish. A bit Count Dracula as well, to be fair. Yeah, I was worried about that as well. It could be also a little Romanian. Count Dracula, very, very arousing, nonetheless. I'd look no further than an interview with a vampire man. Armand, that's Antonio Banderas. Okay, so, yeah, let's kick off proceedings then. Ozzy. Yeah, well, it's already sounding uh, good enough to have a good debate about. So I suppose, uh, Dave, if you don't mind, just elaborating on that um, the, the initial storyline and, and pick, up, pick out some of the big points which I need to be aware of. Yeah, by all means. So essentially, Don't Look Now is a 1973 thriller horror film, I suppose you could call it. It's based on a short story by Daphne du Maurier, the author of Rebecca, Jamaica and the Birds, which was only written two years previously. So it got snapped up pretty quickly and adapted. Uh, into a film and it basically concerns a couple john and laura baxter who lose their daughter tragically right at the start of the of the film she's playing outside they've got like this is a lake uh, near the house she falls in she drowns sadly so this tragedy right out of the gate at the start of the film uh fast hey, forward sorry to be to the end barrier in a cemetery around the back of the house no, <laughs> not. <laughs> You're thinking They're of the right. Right. horror film. <laughs> elderly <Twice> neighbor, <laughs> elderly neighbor warns them against it, and uh, they listened. They listened. Sorry. To okay, sorry, sorry about that. Sorry, yeah. So, so, they, so she, she drowns, and then yeah, um, they have a son as well. That's not really that important, but they have a son as well, and they move to Venice because John uh, restores stained glass windows, and obviously there's an abundance of churches in Venice, and stained glass windows need repairing, so he goes there. For work, they leave their son behind in boarding school back in the UK. And while they're in Venice, it's kind of a dreary setting of Venice, which we'll go more into the, the aesthetics of it all. It's not the sunny tourist hotspot you'd expect. It's quite a dreary, gloomy look of Venice, all shot on location um, and staying well away from the tourist areas. But it basically, as they're going around a bit about their business, they run into a psychic couple, well, two sisters, one of whom is psychic or claims to be psychic at any rate and says that she sees a little girl with them. A little girl in a red coat, which is what the daughter was wearing when she drowned. And she said, she's happy. You know, this is a nice message. She's happy. She's with you still. It, it, it's a nice message to have. Laura believes it. John is skeptical. And as they go around Venice, John's still working on his stained glass. They, John starts witnessing a little figure in a red coat in the, in the distance, across the canals, in the, car, in the alleyways and what have you. He just catches glimpses of this red coat, flashes of it, almost like he's being haunted, you might say. And it comes into this whole thing of, you know, the the, the psychic sister returns and has like a, a message, a warning for him that he's in danger while he's in Venice. And it kind of builds with the suspense from there. So you got these sightings, these weird visions that he might be having. And yeah, these uh, these these warnings as well of impending danger. And that is essentially cool. the film. Okay. Well, it sounds, sounds spooky. Uh, go on, Gav, you've got your hand up there, politely, unlike you. <laughs> now it's just going to count, counteract what, what Dave said, if, if that's all right. That yeah, is yeah, the flaw. No. What are you going to counteract? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything yeah. sounds fairly factual. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not. It's, um, I, I, I did have a genuine question. What did happen to Johnny, the other kid? He got left behind at boarding school. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just you know, like I, I, I when I when I went back to watch it, I was like, they had another kid. Yeah, yeah. They had a son. He gets left out in boarding school because obviously they're traveling off to Italy for a bit while he works on this project, and he does get mentioned later. He has an accident at boarding school, which causes Laura to have to fly back mm-hmm. briefly to the UK just to check in on him. And while she's away, John sees her with the two sisters on a barge, yeah. tries to get her attention, but she blanks him as he goes past. He's like, what is going on? He then gets a phone call from the boarding school and his wife's there with the kid. A lot of, lot of confusing stuff going on here. Yeah. All becomes clear. Okay, so it does sound uh, relatively spooky. I suppose straightforward in a way, but at the moment it doesn't sound scary. Scary, it just sounds a little bit creepy. Uh, Gav? Yeah, so yeah, as Dave said, you know, the, the film centers on on this couple whose daughter dies in a freak drowning accident. And plagued by this, the couple look to reconnect by moving to Venice, a destination that is notoriously barren of any bodies of water. It is literally what I was thinking when you mentioned that. I thought, that's a really odd place to go in. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We need to get away from this. Let's go yeah. to the most landlocked place that we know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that, as Dave mentioned, John is an architectural historian. He's been commissioned to do some restoration work on a church there. Laura befriends two elderly English ladies who claim to know that the Baxter daughter is happy in the afterlife, while John, who is struggling more with the grief than Laura, is haunted, as Dave said, by visions of this tiny figure running through the Venetian walkways wearing a red coat. The same red coat that their daughter wore. Could it be the ghost of their daughter? Of course it couldn't. It's going to be bad news, right? It's all very interesting to this point. Genuinely, where Dave stopped talking, I was hooked, right? But I found that I quickly lost interest right after that. And I struggled to stay focused until the end. And although the opening and also the closing scenes are very, very good, there genuinely isn't a lot to keep you engaged for the hour and 40 minutes in between them. The film, a lot like me, is very bloated in the middle. And it definitely... (laughs) It's more so now, uh, and it definitely needed to be trimmed. Uh, there are a lot of, as Dave said, very nicely shot scenes of Venice, granted, but not a lot actually happens in those scenes. It's quite boring at times, and is not helped by the dialogue between the two central characters, which is often quite protracted, and in some cases, dull. Dave's quite right in his much earlier assessment in that it's quite dated as well. The sound and picture quality is a little bit tinny. The recent transfer as well to 4K hasn't done a good job for the soundtrack, which sounds really distorted and almost like you're listening to it through a jacket. I will I will say that there are some good things covered here. You know, it does a very good job of covering grief and the use of symbolism and motifs throughout is well done at first, but it becomes sort of overused. There's an over-reliance on a non-linear narrative with events and scenes flipping from the past, the present to the future, which creates a bit of a disconnect, especially when there's not a lot to focus on. So it's almost like the the, the director is using symbolism and visions to substitute for a plot or for any sort of like action. And one of my main criticisms about watching this back is that there is about like, I think it's about four and a half minute long love scene between the two. It's, it's one of those like widely debated scenes and like, oh, did they actually have sex or not? Because it looks that realistic. And I read that the director inserted this love scene into the film because he felt like John and Laura spent the entire film arguing and wanted to make it more believable that they were actually in love. And like, I, I don't think that helped at all, really. They just seemed like a, a very unhappy couple. And then there was this, just this really weird love-making scene that was just thrown in. It felt a bit unexpected. It was of a much poorer quality than any of the other scenes within the film. 
And it was actually quite laughable. I did laugh out loud at this point because <laughs> it That's felt like... embarrassment? Were you watching it with... Uh... But yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how, how was I? How was I supposed to know? I wasn't supposed to watch it on a train. I think, <laughs> think hey, Dave's got his hand up there. Are you, you want to just very, it? just very quickly on the on the love scene. I think Gav's problem is that in between watching it probably when he was younger and now he's watched, I would imagine, like thousands of hours of porn. <laughs> and I'd imagine that's slightly <laughs> jaded and given him a slightly different idea on on the Don't Look Now love scene. Sorry to especially, interrupt today. Especially in October when, he's, when his search history is pretty much just a yeah, yeah, scary clown I mean? porn. I mean, mor <laughs> morphine's a hell of a drug, Gav. I don't know what you search. Listen, like that. I'm, I'm, that's not my main criticism here, that it wasn't porn quality <laughs> love making. It sounded, it sounded like it. It sounded like it. <laughs> <laughs> if, Go on, sorry, Dave. Here, yeah, Dave. I just want to come back on, on the love scene because this is something that people do talk about quite a lot to this day this love scene was was critical to be honest with you there's uh, a lot of people said it was like nothing we'd seen before this was such a at the time graphic for 1973 this was such a graphic scene to be shown and it's all very suggestive and what have you, you know there was always the rumor of did they actually just have sex on camera while nicholas frog filmed it they did not donald sutherland is to this day denying that that is what happened but there is much more to this it's not just to show that their marriage is healthy um, and, and just because they're having arguments. This is why Nicholas Rogue decided to include it because he thought, oh, they're arguing quite a lot. You know, Laura believes in the afterlife. John doesn't. They're having a quite a few arguments, therefore. Yes, it serves that purpose, as Gav said, but it also drives their characters forward. This is them healing after losing their daughter, after suffering this, this unimaginable grief. This is them coming back together and having a moment of tenderness together and it's it's a long scene because it's interspersed it's well edited with other things and unlike some other love scenes that we see these days which is kind of like the build-up to it may be interspersed you know the couple undressing each other it's actually them dressing each other and getting ready to go out for the night so that's what it's interspersed with it's kind of like that look of a marriage you know it's not just done for erotica's sake it's there because it drives the characters forward this is character progression happening before your eyes and it's fantastically done you know i mean so well so that warren Beatty, who was Dating Julie Christie at the time the film came out actually punched the director Nicholas Rogue because he thought that it hadn't been simulated and it, it looked that realistic. And he heard a rumor that Nicholas Rogue had uh, actually filmed them having sex and had kept the unedited version for himself. Warren Beatty, that famous monogamist who exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. didn't Some like anyone. Yeah. Like... So, so took it upon himself to punch Nicholas Rogue in the face, yeah. who was considerably shorter than him. You know, had he been more of a man, I'm sure he'd have gone for Donald Sutherland. He could have punched him back. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I did read that as well. And I heard that Warren Beatty thought that Nicholas Rogue was hosting private screenings of this, like, mm -hmm. yeah. unedited porn. He genuinely <laughs> believed that. Yeah. Maybe he was just upset he wasn't getting invited to it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think he was just a little jealous and a little possessive because Warren also tried to edit the film he also said he should be placed on the editing board so we could cut that scene out but uh mm -hmm. yeah that's warren Beatty for you either way the film the this scene is critical to the film it's not just there for the sake of it being there it's crucial uh gav joel whoever but just a very quick one dave do you think that it does look a little bit like confessions of a window cleaner it's the same sort of quality. <laughs> I've not actually seen Confessions of a Window Cleaner. I have you seen any of the Confessions films? <laughs> I haven't. I will take your word for it that it is. I'm sure they came out around a similar time, I think. But all so, I'm going to say, Dave, is if I was to show you that scene and play yeah. the theme from Benny Hill in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if you well. play the theme from Benny Hill to anything, it, it almost makes it a comedy, doesn't it? So. <laughs> No, that's that. Okay, so that's really good. It's quite a real bone of contention here. Pardon the pun. Um, 
<laughs> around that scene. What about uh, what about <laughs> while Gav's just choking on his drink? Um, no. What have you? It's a bit of a comeback. It sounds like actually it's fairly well shot. It's um, maybe the upscaling hasn't worked so well because they've left behind the sound. But in terms of the storyline, you know, is it creepy? Is it scary? You know, I got the thrust of what you were saying there, Ozzy, but... it's <laughs> <laughs> a good pun. <laughs> um, so in terms of how it shot, just first of all, I found it, like, I actually can't remember if you were with us when we covered Suspiria, but I found it very similar to that. I found it, like, very jarring. There's a lot of kind of... <laughs> I almost found it, you know, difficult to watch at times. It's kind of going for this, like, artistic style, but in fact, it just kind of comes off as something that I don't want to watch you know despite what's maybe unfolding on the screen and things like that it was very off-putting in terms of like the actual horror of it dave sold it really well i think at the, at the start you know he made the storyline sound very good and it is good up until that point as gav said but after that after you know kind of he starts seeing this this little girl in red that is kind of where it almost becomes less of a horror and it becomes less of a thriller but the point of the film is that's where it's kind of meant to get a little bit spooky and um, but it just kind of doesn't pull that off i don't think and for me it just kind of felt as i say a little bit jarring that the tone at the start of the film kind of really rapidly turns and for me the i wasn't scared at all watching it like I, i'm not sure if it is meant to be a horror or if it's meant to be a thriller i'm not sure but I don't think it was either of those things. And it's probably one of those films, actually, that, you know, you can't really have your cake and eat it. Yeah, I, th I think it, there's a lot of things that it could do better. I think it was a strong start, which just kind of meandered through the rest of the film, you know, kind of maybe intersecting different genres without really kind of nailing down one of them. So for me, it was just, um, you know, a little bit of a, a lost momentum, I think. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I'd, you know, there's a, there's a word that really, that no one has said yet, that really springs to mind with Don't Look Now, which is... Like the... <laughs> good one. Sorry. <laughs> Always a good one. Annoyer, it begins with a P. Like, I feel like this, the big thing about this is not maybe, like, jump scares, definitely not, or, like, you know, the thriller element. It's the paranoia that Donald Sutherland portrays, and he will get onto cast and character later, but God, he nails it. But it's the slow unbuilding. His I wife... <laughs> <laughs> his wife uh you know sort of gets to know these two women that are saying they've got psychic viewings of their you know their dead daughter christine and donald sutherland just wants nothing to do with it you know i mean i don't think it's a it's a mistake he's sort of the wife obviously blames him for the death of the daughter for letting them play near this pond i don't think it's a you know it's an accident that they've decided to go to venice it's almost like a you know, self-flagellation a little bit again, pun intended. But, <laughs> but like, it is just to sort of, you know, to punish himself with this, you know, with, by, by being around water. And his descent into this paranoia is fantastic because you don't know quite where the film's going. It, it, you know, it's not a conventional film. Again, I think we said this recently, but it's not like you can say, well, it's not a thriller and it's not a horror. It don't look now. And I think it's good enough to be unique in itself. And, and, and it really is. Gav was talking about like an overuse of symbolism and it does not go down the Suspiria route of just being overly, you know, that sort of overuse of like pretentious sort of direction and stuff like that. Yeah, it's not nice, is it, Gav, when people use it about the film you like? But, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's it's not overly done. It's very interestingly done. This is a very rich film in the way it's been made and 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 thought through. 
one big film thing... in the way it's being made is just another word for pretentious thing. <laughs> it's not. Uh, and a big thing just to talk about, last thing to maybe talk about on story, is I thought it was a really mature look at grief. You know, it did. it doesn't use grief as the hook and then go, oh, you know, and it's a ghost story or something like that, which, you know, maybe if we look about, you know, the taking of Deborah Logan, I felt a bit happened with the Alzheimer's a bit. I know we didn't all agree on that, but that's how I felt a bit. Whereas I think the grief's really maturely looked at. You don't, as I was first watching it, you've got the fact that he gets the daughter out of the lake. And I thought, right, you're going to go straight into they hate each other. They don't get on. You know, he's, she blames him and he blames her. And But it's very, it's very mature and it's very grown up. Like they get on at the start. Do you know what I mean? They're not always arguing. They, they kind of do get on a little bit. They meet for the dinner. But there's obviously tensions that are building in their relationship. But it's just, it, it was refreshingly grown up about it and it wasn't very it wasn't i was thinking oh you know you could almost write it right they're not going to like each other they're going to blame each other but it's just not quite that simple yeah so not, not a simple horror film but god damn it a very good one i feel like maybe either i wasn't quite paying attention or we're skirting around the subject here is that based on gav's introduction to the entire show the the character in red i guess is not actually the daughter no, no. And it, it turns out at the very end, literally, like, am like I an ultimate scene. Sorry? <laughs> are we going to ruin the film for me by saying it? I think I already, I've already captured what we are. Potentially a little, yeah. We, if we can avoid saying it for anyone who might watch it, it is a hell of a twist ending. It is, you know, it, if I were to explain it to you, it might sound a little silly if I were to explain yeah. it and spell it out, but you sure as hell cannot predict it. Okay. Unless well, you've had it spoiled for you, you will not see that ending coming. Okay. Yeah, and as I said before, I'm not disputing the fact that the end and the 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 ending scene and the opening scene were good because I do think that they they were the, one of the best parts of the film. I just think that it lost momentum in the middle, as Joel was saying before. Uh, reopening up it that Alex said then as well is it is it a it's actually a take on grief and it's a it's the paranoia around now. Is it completely completely not? It, it's very much something along those lines. If you take the two sisters, for example, one of them being uh, psychic, you know, the blind sister um, has, has the gift of being able to communicate with the dead, or so she says. Does she? We don't know. If there's this great scene as um, as John and Laura walking away. They're talking to each other. Laura wants to believe the sisters. She thinks there's something in it, and it's it's cheered her up. It really has. You know, she's felt some sense of relief from them telling you, oh, your daughter's happy in the afterlife. John is much more skeptical. He gets quite angry about them having to discuss this. He's very much, you know, a, a firm non-believer. And despite the fact that he has these visions as well, and he has a yeah. touch of her gift. But as they're talking about the two sisters, it cuts the two sisters in their hotel room, laughing hysterically to it with each other. We don't know what they're laughing about. It's just a split second shot of the two of them, of the two of them laughing heartily. And it just fills you with this paranoia. As the film goes on, because you don't know what they're laughing about. You presume they're laughing about, oh, we got one over on them. We're going to rinse them or, you know, we're going to take them. As the film goes on, there's actually nothing to be afraid of with these sisters. They genuinely are trying to do something nice. But just that flashy moment of them sharing an inside joke Makes fills you with that paranoia. And it just plants you firmly in where, in where John's head is at at that point in time. And Gav? One of my things about this film is that it's always held as one of the you know greatest horror films of all time or one of the best British horror films. Or, you know, it's got like, you know, the, the top 10 jump scares or whatever. And it's not actually, as Joel mentioned before, a horror film. Alex quite succinctly put it before when he said it's more about a film about grief. And I think it is a sort of drama masquerading as, as a horror film. 
But I think that it can maybe at the time was missold. And even now, if you were to go back and look at it, you would be a bit disappointed because your expectations would be a bit high because it's called Don't Look Now. You think it's like one of those like slasher films that's like, don't look now, don't go into the basement sort of thing. And you actually watch it and it's like this this long drama about, you know, a, a family dealing with a horrific tragedy. And there aren't really that many like horrific moments in it. I'd say, you know, at the beginning, like, you know, the scene where the daughter dies. Yeah, obviously that's very traumatic. And then at the end, there's a, there's a true moment of horror. But within the film itself, not that much really happens horrific or scary or terrifying. It is, you know, I just feel like you've been oversold something, if that makes sense. Because you can look now. Because it's okay I, can't, to look I was able to look throughout the entire thing. There wasn't one moment, apart from maybe seeing too much of Donald Sutherland's 70s Bush, that I wasn't able to. <laughs> I was going to bring that up, actually. It's been a bit of a theme to, uh, to films recently where we get to see our, um, a reasonably good dong, you know, there's some clever camera angles and uh, spares the audience. For a half an hour sex scene, you'd want some dong. So. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of arse and <laughs> Go on, Dave. I just want to quickly touch on the horror. It is Halloween Horror Month after all, and Gav's set me up quite nicely for it. It's not that, it, there's not that many jump scares in it. There's a couple of moments that might make you jump, especially when he captures the red figure looking at him from around the corner or something. Um, but mostly this is a sense of impending doom. This is a sense of dread that just builds and builds as the film progresses and as it gets more desperate. Uh, that's why it's set in Venice uh, in the wintertime, though. So the sun is barely shining. It is a dreary Venice, a dilapidated Venice. And it was not filmed in any tourist hotspots purely for that reason, that you get to see the darker side of this city. Uh, that was the whole purpose behind it. But it's the impending sense of dread that brings the horror. And ultimately, the, the ending is horrifying. And we're building, it plays the long game but it's a game worth waiting for when it plays out. And like I said, a guy at work said to me this was the scariest film he'd ever seen. Now, he's, he's of the older generation, but maybe we could call this the boomer generation's Insidious. Okay. Um, and, and then, well... The DVD case right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say it, it is, it is it's like a very long game of Snap where no pairs come up until the very, very final card. <laughs> <laughs> but then all the cards match. Yeah. <laughs> but then you get slammed with a giant fucking rowing wall. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that might be a, uh, a little hint at what's to come, considering we're in Venice. Anywho, we touched on it a little bit throughout where we, you know, Joel mentioned it's a 30 minute sex scene. We don't actually see any of Donald Sutherland's um, penis for, for want of a more funny <laughs> You're getting back onto it. I thought that we'd done with that, but now you're getting right Sorry, back no, onto I the penis. Well, I've, I've reached my question a little earlier. So that strikes one, me that that's quite clever. a funnier that, word. Yeah, it strikes me, you know, is that's quite clever direction to have such a long scene. And then we talked about it being interspersed with the aftermath of that. And and, and like the how's, the rest of, how's the rest of the direction? You know, Gav mentioned that it's actually pretty boring for the middle scene. So it's stunning. The, the, the direction in this should probably be shown. I imagine it's studied by directors. Uh, it, it's very, it's very cleverly done. I mean, so clever as to be a little bit beyond me, to be honest, but like there, there was some pit that, <laughs> like there a little, little uh, humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very good. As you know, as you know, Aussie, I'm very clever. Now, it, that, that, there's clearly stuff that's just like interwoven all the way through it. There's water's a big theme all the way through it in the imagery. The red, the colour red sort of pops up a lot. And I think if you watch this film 
again, you'd probably see it more. Uh, the idea of people falling quite a lot sort of comes in through quite a lot of the, the images as well and glass smashing. So it's it's obviously been extremely well thought out. And this is a cinema goer's film, really, because it's not just telling you everything through exposition or the characters saying, I'm sad that Christine's dead. I'm sad too, but I'm dealing with it in this way. Well, I'm dealing with it, in, you know, and it, it's not that sort of thing. It's really trying to convey stuff through the power of image yeah. with sound and music. And it, it's very, very... It's just very clever, and 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 Nicholas Rogue did a fantastic job on this. So the the symbolism isn't that sort of symbolism where you're just like, oh my god, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's interesting symbolism. It doesn't sound when you say the symbolism in Don't Look Now, instantly you go like, oh god, really? But it's not like anyone's Crucifix trying to like. Is. No one's trying to shout like shove anything down your throat. No, no one's trying to. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> 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 and, uh, no one's trying to do that. It's it's an interesting use of it, and it's not it's not so it's it's done well enough that you can. It's almost subconscious when you're watching it. It's yeah. not like oh look how clever I am. I've introduced the theme of water again. Look at me. It, it's just very a very well put together film directorially. So on that, Joel, um, just a very quick one on counter on the symbolism. Is it you know is it subtle? Is it subliminal or? You do you feel like constantly watching? Like I said, like I I found this very kind of similar to Suspiria in terms of how they're trying to like just ram symbolism down your face, and I can almost see Alex like trying to keep a straight face while while saying that because well, it's just the actual phrase "shove it down his throat." Just (laughs) (laughs) after everything we've said, they are um, they are I would say similar in terms of like their artistic styles and in terms of like some of the contrast in in film and techniques and things like that. Now, Bill concede that for its time, like it was probably quite you know kind of forward thinking and that type of thing. But I think watching it now, which it was my first time. And, you know, as we've kind of said, touching on a few kind of older films during Halloween Horror Month, watching it now, it's definitely a little bit jarring in terms of like the symbolism. And especially, you know, for somebody who doesn't like things like that kind of forced down the throat. I, I always kind of point to films like Shaun of the Dead, you know, where they kind of take the piss a little bit out of symbolism. You've got, you know, it's got like, you know, you've got red on you. I think that's a little bit more modern. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I, I think it was touched upon during the earlier arguments about uh, direction prior to the symbolism. And we talked about the some of the script. How how do the main characters? It strikes me it's Donald Sutherland and who? Julie Christie. Julie Christie. I guess it's primarily them that we're looking at throughout the entire film. And then it also sounds like she gets off home after a little while so it's just on a sudden she lens. gets off big time. i know yeah i was just thinking <laughs> of <myself. laughs> but so she heads she heads home and Dave uh, is having a really bad time if, <laughs> no no if we if we can't have fun with one of the most famous love scenes in cinema <laughs> when are we gonna have fun <laughs> but um so so she, she goes home so we're left with just on a sudden i assume how 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 are how are the cast how are the characters uh, I'll start off on this one. Um, she's only gone briefly. She's only gone for about 20 minutes of the film, as it were. She's gone for like 24 hours, flies back to see the sun. He's fine. Comes straight back to Venice for the the, the climax of the film. 
No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 on it But yeah, no, the cast are sublime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely sublime. It does hinge on Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie and their performance and their believability as a couple, as a married couple as well. One that's not just like they're not in the, on their honeymoon period. They're an established couple and they work so well together. You know, Nicholas Rogue had them in his head as soon as he was casting the film and he was absolutely right to do so they work so well together you mentioned about dialogue so much that the improvisation of, of certain bits he was changing the script every now and again when he heard the two of them talking they went to film a scene in a church and um donald sutherland was like could we not find a better church than this one yeah i don't like this one julie christie was like, oh, stop being silly it's a perfectly nice church and nicholas rogue was like that's yeah. going in that's <laughs> going in the script right now you guys reenact that and he was just having these two actors working so well to each other, reading from the same script, you know, and working from the same script as Nicholas Rogue himself. It worked so well. The supporting cast as well, I think, are fantastic. You've got the two sisters, uh, Heather and Wendy, played by Hilary Mason, and clearly uh, Mantiana. Uh, you've got the bishop, played by Massimo Serrato. It's only a small role. He's essentially John's employer while he's preparing the stained glass. It's a small role, but really impactful. Massimo Serrato was very famous in Italian cinema. Didn't do too many English-language roles but he, he just presence it just oozes from the man you know he's superb in the small scenes you see him in other than that it's a very small cast but perfectly cast and work together like a dream okay small cast work together like an absolute dream a wet dream <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd say julie christie was all right in this I, I, she didn't stand out massively for me donald sutherland I, yeah, I think was was very good. I think the way that he depicted the sort of the the grief experienced by parents who's just suffered a traumatic loss, very very good at the beginning. One thing I will criticise there is Donald Sutherland's hair. I don't know what was going on there. I, I was I was watching it the whole time and I was thinking, is that a wig? I genuinely don't. And I googled it at the end, and it is. It is and I was a wig. Like, I was like, Why was he wearing a wig? I was like, because he's got the seventies. <laughs> but I was watching it like it reminded me of Woody Harrelson's cameo at the end of uh, Venom. But it was just like, sort of like, no way, that's not real hair. The collar anyway. had to match the cuff scarf. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying that they couldn't get rid of the bush, so you had to wear a wig. Uh, exactly. That, so, uh, you know, so the, they were they were fine. And at the end of the day, they're the two main actors, so they're going to be the better performers because they're going to be the ones that are carrying the film. The other cast members that Dave's mentioned are all right. They don't attract from anything i will say that my main issue is with characters and characterizations so one thing it follows the old horror trope of having people with disabilities as either villains or as having special powers and it does both here you've got the oracle the blind lady who can essentially speak to the dead and then you've got Oh, no spoilers, but you've also got, uh, I've already spoiled it anyway, but you know, you've also got a disabled character as a villain in this also. It just feels a little bit like a bit ham-fisted. You know, I think that you could have had one or the other, but... That's quite both. a disability. <laughs> ham-fisted. Is that even a saying, ham-fisted? Yeah, yeah, it's what um, Miss Piggy but, used to give to kids. <laughs> 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 Possibly the best joke in four okay, years. I get it now. <laughs> As we're discussing a very sensitive part of the film, he just couldn't help himself. <laughs> oh, Christ. 
Uh, <laughs> is there a? <laughs> oh come on, Alex! I think you had your hand up. At yeah, some I can. I'll try and I'll try and forget what the, the sentence that Gav just said for, for the rest of my life. <laughs> but uh, no, I like you know saying that a blind seer. That's a trope going back thousands of years. You know, what I mean, you look at classical literature and you've got the blind seer. So it's a little unfair to pick out the you know the nineteen seventy three film Don't Look Now for doing it. Like seers, you know, blind people who can see the future and see psychically. That 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 that's used quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's Gav's point, but also I don't think you can really attack Don't Look Now for doing something which has been done for for millennia, literally millennia. And I think the idea, you know, at the end. It wouldn't really have made sense. At the end, he's looking, he's running after his daughter. And yes, it's a little person who's dressed in a red coat, but it wouldn't have made much sense if it was a fully grown adult, would it? I mean, it's the only thing that makes sense. So, you know, I, I can understand why at the end it is a little person in the coat and, you know, that they're the, and it's not, you know, Gav saying it's a villain as having a disability. Well, I would say that actually you don't know that the villain is a little person until right at the very, very, very last second of the film. So it's not exactly like the film saying, oh, you know what I mean, character. It's not going after that trope and it's right at the end of the film. So I can see what Gav means, but I think, I, you know, I think that would be my response to those two points. Cool. Okay. So not not quite the same, the same effect they went for with Leprechaun. Exactly. It's yeah, yeah, close. They, they went in a different direction. Yeah. Well, that, that, well that's, that's a Leprechaun. That's, that's different. That's a mythical creature. <laughs> um, anywho, uh, Dave, I think you had a, I th- we're going to do some wrap-ups. Do you want to start with uh, maybe a prosecution wrap-up and a defence wrap-up? Yeah, I'll just give you a quick wrap-up point. You know, um, I just want to say this was obviously an adaptation of a short story by Daphne du Maurier, and she wrote to Nicholas Rogue after the film came out, and she absolutely loved it. She praised this uh, adaptation, congratulating him, in particular the way he captured the Baxter's relationship. She adored that point and asked if Nicholas Rogue wanted to adapt any more of her short stories and novels in the coming years. Yeah. Uh, so she absolutely adored this film, and for good reason. It's it's lauded by horror filmmakers to this day. I mean, I remember Ari Aster talking about how, how it influenced Hereditary uh, when that was being made. It's, it's a key point, it's a, a keystone in British cinema, with sensational cinematography, sublime direction, and one of the best cinematic pairings, in my opinion. Joel, Gav, who wants to do the wrap-up? I will say that like at the time that this was released, it wasn't a very successful film. It only made about £70,000 on the international box office, and so much so that they were worried that it wouldn't really be seen by a lot of people, so they paired it with The Wicker Man, so it was like a double feature. So it was, this was the main feature, and then afterwards you had a condensed version of The Wicker Man as well. I think that expectations were a bit off about the film initially, and I think that like, a lot of people might have gone into this thinking that it's, it's going to be a, 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 like a horror film like The Exorcist that came well, out did of you, did, Were you talking to people in 1973 when they were going into the cinema, and did they say, oh, man, don't look now. Fuck me. We're not going to be looking a lot in this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, it Let's was after go. they came out, to be honest, Alex. After they came out, they, they, said, they said to me, I wish I hadn't looked now. Yeah, yeah. Or, or then. Did. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I just think that, you know, it, it, it coming out at the exact same time as The Exorcist as well, which is probably the most acclaimed and most successful horror film of all time. And you can compare it to it a little bit in, in the way that it's filmed and its use of symbolism and style. Uh, but... I, I think that if you're going into it expecting to watch a horror film, then suspend your... I understand what you're Suspend your expectations. Yeah, suspend yeah. your expectations because <laughs> it's not a horror film. It's, it's more like a drama. 
thing. Okay. That's, uh, you know, I think I've got a lot of food for thought here. Not the strongest closing argument you've ever come up with, Gav. Makes me think that you don't really believe in it. But um... listen, I've had a lot on this week. If you hadn't fucking known, right? I didn't have time to write up fucking closing arguments. And there are two Googling. people on this team. Been I know, but Joel's done a stellar job, to be honest with you. Yeah, Joel's I mean, still writing There's only so arguments. much you can do to, you know, write a sinking ship, isn't there, so? <laughs> uh, any who do, has somebody written a quiz on this one? I have. So, oh, yeah, get, get ready for one of the most difficult quizzes you've ever faced. It's, it's, it's not that bad. I, I thought we'd not really done a, a quiz on films set in Venice. And there's been a surprising number of films set in Venice over the years. So uh, this is a little quiz all about that. So question number one, and please buzz in. Do not shout out at me. Question number one, Donald Sutherland returned to Venice to film the 2003 remake of which Gavin? The Italian Job. It is the Italian job. Well done. That's a point to Gavin. I should really make a note of this. Point to Gavin. Question number two. In a film that Edward Norton was contractually obliged to appear <laughs> and, in, and he hated every fucking <laughs> every second you can tell. <laughs> you can tell by the moustache, can't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. God love him. He's not having a good day, is he? <laughs> Question number two. Casino Royale saw Daniel Craig's Bond fight multiple quantum operatives in a collapsing Venetian building. How does he dispatch the villain Gettler? Bam! Alex. A nail gun through the gap through the eye. It is a nail gun through the oh, eye. Well done. Well remembered. Question number three. Which other Bond film features a gondola transform into a car? Bam! Alex. No, I actually have forgotten because I hated it so much. A gondola <laughs> transforms into a car. <laughs> yeah, it, I live and let die. It's not live and let die. It's one of a Roger Moore. Is it a Moore one? It is a Roger Moore. I thought you were going to go for From Russia with Love. I don't know. I no. No. Is it The Spy Love Me? It's not. A view to a kill. Octopussy. It's not. It's not. Moonraker. Boom. Moonraker it is. Point <laughs> we just went Alex. through the whole lot. Give, give my, we got give there my in point, the end. Give my point to Ozzy. I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're having it. <laughs> Question number four. Shakespeare's Othello uh, tells the story of a Moorish general in the Venetian army. Who plays Othello in the 1995 film adaptation? Oh, bam. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the guy who was in Oz. No. Oh, is it Denzel? No. No idea, sorry. No one? Yeah. Nope. No. Samuel Jackson? No. No, it's Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think we all knew what we were going to start doing there, which is why we... Yeah, <laughs> we bring that to a quick close. Yeah. Question number five. In Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, Peter Parker and Mysterio defend Venice from a water elemental. What is Mysterio's real name? And I have uh, options if you need Joel. Oh, yeah. right. Quent Quentin Blake. Close. Quentin Beck. Quentin, Quentin Beck. Beck. I'm going to give you Quentin both Blake's the points. The illustrator for Rolls R, isn't he? Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell which of us has a kid. <laughs> I wasn't pleased to see Tim defense Venice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to give you both a point for that. You're, you're very close. Uh, number six. The Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword feature in which 1980? Alex. Is it Indiana Jones? And the Lost Crusade. It is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh. Correct. Okay. It's one of those things, Brotherhood of, of the Cruciform Sword. It just sticks in your head, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's yeah. from which 1989 film where they set fire to a tomb beneath the library. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Question number seven Spider Man's Aunt May, Marissa Tamai, traveled through Venice in 1994's Only You, but which Avenger played her love interest? Bam. 1994. Um, yes. Um, Robert Downey Jr. 
It is Robert Downey Jr. Well done, one of the few Avengers who had a career in 1994. Question number eight. Al Pacino played Shylock in 2004's Merchant of Venice, but who played the merchant Antonio? Oh, oh fudge. Uh, Robert's near. No. <laughs> that would have been I, I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, uh, that was a tricky one. Jeremy Irons. Oh. Question number nine. Which 2010 comedy thriller set in Venice stars Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie? Oh, has oh. Alex. The Tourist. It is The Tourist. The perfect trap. Sorry, The Perfect Trip and The Perfect Trap. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, question number 10. Donald Sutherland, John Malkovich, Bella Lugosi, Richard Chamberlain, and Heath Ledger have all played which famous Venetian oh. figure in film? Alex. Casanova. It is Giacomo Casanova. Wow, that is a well dis- done. Well, a divisive you, win well for done. Alex. <laughs> well done, man. Alex, Alex wins Venice. Hey, he loves his films in Venice, doesn't he, Donald Sutherland? He really does. Yeah, yeah that, 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 I was surprised how often Donald Sutherland cropped up when I was doing this. <laughs> Maybe that's why he knew there were so many better churches to uh, to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I've been here for decades. I know where the good churches They won't let me leave. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon he goes back and he just sees the shadowy figure of Nicholas Rogue watching him from... <laughs> the little red back. <laughs> and he's got a film, a little, uh, little reel of film. He says, I, I've got got this still <laughs> thanks for that quiz dave i don't think i got any points but i enjoyed listening to it um <laughs> you did so get my point well, that's the main thing yeah, yeah, yeah bruce gave you one <laughs> that was good um, i uh make quite a lot of notes on this time it started by uh misunderstanding necessarily what the guy did i wrote st helen's glass repairman has enough money <laughs> to uh send his kids to boarding school and then move to venice Oh, that was a little, uh, a little <laughs> bit interesting, but genuinely, I think um, it sounds like there's a lot going on for this film. So, you know, it's an older film, 1973. So, I think some of the tropes and some of the um, some of maybe the cliches of horror we can we can forgive a little bit um, because it's you know it's 30 odd years, almost 30 years old, so 50 years old. Yeah, I was gonna say it's much, much more than 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like almost 30 years old. <laughs> it's, it's over 30 years old. That's what I should have said. It's almost no. 30 in the same way that I am almost 30. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think you can forgive it, uh, some of those things. But equally, you know, we saw that with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street last week that um, some of those things can be a bit annoying. You know, you can see bits which just don't translate into the modern day. So, um, I could, you know, I could see both arguments on that one. What struck me is that everybody seemed to agree that the opening scenes and the closing scenes are are great, and it's a it's a wonderful twist at the end of the film, which you know is is quite you know it's quite a lot to ask for in a film to to at least keep you maybe not fully engaged for the entire time, but at least grip you back for the last you know the last ten fifteen minutes. And for me, the symbolism I think Alex and Dave did a really good job making me believe that it's not necessarily over the top but then like joel's joel's a man who speaks his word and it, it sounded like it's actually primarily symbolism so it's a really tough one to 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 take out of it but yeah my my main feel with this is that it sounds as though it's uh dave used the, the term keystone and um and i think from what's been described to me i've seen these things being used in later films and um i think for that it probably got a lot to um a lot to answer for so i'm gonna put it onto the hit list but with um some trepidation 
Thank you very much, Ozzy. Well summed up. I will say that if Dave uses the term Keystone, the film gets put on the hit list. But if I use the term Keystone, Suspiria goes on the shit list. <laughs> Maybe if I was I was saying for Suspiria, then it could it could well have ended up. Whatever, let's just stop talking about Suspiria now. So <laughs> you brought it up. Who judged Suspiria? Do you remember? I, I don't want to know because then I'll probably just end up hating them for a little bit more than I already do, which is quite a lot. I was in a very calm, pleasant mood at the beginning of this. Let's not forget that. The drugs have worn off throughout. <laughs> <laughs> right okay so dave i mean uh, you know you pretty much know what, what, what you think about this uh you happy with the results i am delighted with the result thank you austin it, it, this film is superb it really is one of my favorite horror films it's not gen- as horrifying as maybe it was back in 1973 you know horrors come a long way there were some real landmark horror films that came out after this one so you know if you watch it you might not find it as necessarily scary as as current films but it's Rather than look at it as a brilliant horror film, look at it as a brilliant film that happens to be in the horror genre. And it's certainly in the right place with that in mind. But the ending will stay with you. And the the, the use of cinematography, I mean, what a BAFTA for Anthony Richmond for his cinematography in this. The direction, the characters, performances, everything is just no perfect. Mm-hmm. It's a superb film. I'm very happy where it is. But I must confess, I had an ulterior motive for bringing Don't Look Now to the table. Uh, Gav, what, what do you think? So my, my opinion on this film is that uh, I, I fucking love this film. This is a fantastic film. And um, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. There's so many aspects I'll agree with Alex and, and Dave. The use of motifs throughout. The, the fact that the color red is in absolutely every scene, like it's in every single scene is absolutely amazing. The foreshadowing throughout, you know, the very first scene where we see him inspecting the church picture and he spills paint on it and it forms in this, it, like the like a crescent shape, looks like blood. And then at the very end, that same shape of blood forms, you know, once he's been attacked. It's amazing. And one thing like I hate when people say is like when, when they're re- reviewing a film and they say, the location is its own character or something pretentious like that. But I think that that is accurate in, in this, the way the rogue transforms Venice, you know, this beautiful picturesque romantic city into this really dark visceral place through the use of like these really close camera shots, tight angles or spaces and filming, you know, pointing up to make the film, to make, to make the city feel like it's looming over or closing in on the characters you know, I just thought it's absolutely brilliant. And the reason that Dave picked this primarily is because a couple of weeks ago, Joel was mentioning that Siobhan had said that I watched a film when I was very young that had scarred me and that probably had affected me in later years. And that's why I can't really get scared by horror films. I'm completely dead inside. And that was this. I did watch this <laughs> when it was very, like I snuck downstairs when I was about six and I watched this on the TV. And I remember being like terrified by it. And I remember watching it back years later. Now, I must have seen a heavily edited version because I watched it back with my mum in my teens, right? And I was like, oh, man, I love this film. Let's watch this. And then we had the most uncomfortable four and a half minutes. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I don't remember this, this scene in here. <laughs> mum, I, I came down when I was six and watched this all by myself. I, know, yeah. I, was like, I was like, I watched this when I was really young and I really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, fucking no wonder you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, and it, it, it made the lasting impact on me. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I love horror films so much. I don't know. But yeah, you've definitely made the right call, in my opinion. Uh, but who, who, who might not share my opinion? Joel, what did you think? I think very much like Night of the Hunter, really. I, I would consider this like a thriller. I think maybe films that were classif- classified as, you know, horror back in the day aren't, you know, 
hor- horrific anymore because, like I said, I watched this for the first time, and although I massively enjoyed it, like I couldn't get Suspiria out my head, and I couldn't get Shaun of the Dead out my head, you know, with the whole red on you thing. So maybe watching it like back in the day, you'd kind of get a lot more out of it. But I do think, especially for its time, it, it's just amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And finally, Alex. Yeah, it's definitely on the right list. Like it's a it's a modern cinematic classic. You know, regardless of being horror or not, it's an absolute classic. But I will say that I was trying not to be because I didn't want to be, but I was a bit bored at certain bits. Like I overall, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's a really really good film. But I was just like, I am a bit bored. It, there were certain bits when I just couldn't help the feeling. And you know, you like I was reaching for my phone, and I was like, no, 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 don't do that. But that's not exactly a good sign. So really, really good film. But yeah, I, I couldn't help a couple of impulses to... Yeah, I, I think I was IMDb. being a little bit genuine earlier when I said it needed a bit of trimming in the middle. I think there was... It, hey! Number two around the sides. Uh, but, but yeah, anyway, right, so... Uh, thank you very much for your arguments, guys. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you very much to everyone that's listened. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, unfortunately, that's the end of Halloween Horror Month, but don't worry, because the fun is going to continue next week when we just move on to regular reviewing of, of bog-standard films. So next week, we have pulled the, the film out of the hat, and it's going to be Free Guy. So uh, look forward to that one. But in two weeks' time, one for your diaries... We have got our 200th episode and we're going to do a trial of No Time to Die. So, yeah, we're going to uh, put the latest James Bond film on trial to mark our 200th episode. It'll be semi-live as in we'll finally all get together in the same room and have a couple of drinks maybe. So it might be slightly longer than usual, but it's definitely one to check out. I'm sure it'll be a very fun episode. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to be in your ears next week with Free Guy. If you want more Films on Trial content, check out filmsontrial.co.uk. And check us out on Twitter at Film Trials or Facebook, Instagram, and or YouTube Films on Trial. So that is it. Don't look now is a hit, and we're gonna be deep in those ears next week with Free Guy. Goodbye. You, you could argue we could have talked about Green Mile without talking about Tom Hanks's dick quite so much, but with Don't Look Now, I'm sure it's acceptable. It's fine. I mean, you could argue that for for most of the trials that we've done, we could. Yeah, but I mean, what is the point to us if that's the the stance we're going to take, right? No, yeah. If we're not going to talk about dicks in films, then I don't know why we've we're doing this at all. Yeah, yeah. we may as well stop now. That's why I'm here. <laughs>